Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. We are going to dive right into the deep end on this episode of All Things. I have with me Vanitha Reisner, who is an author and speaker and friend of mine. I recently finished reading Vanitha's book, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption and I found it so captivating. Vanitha is an excellent storyteller, and she is willing to be authentic and vulnerable and just honest about both love and loss in her life and how God has shaped her through tragedy and suffering. I highly encourage you to go to Amazon after you finish listening to this episode and grab yourself a copy of Walking Through Fire by Vanitha. So I want to start this episode by asking Vanitha to introduce herself to you, and she's going to share some of her life story with you. Having read your book, Vanitha, I know there is a lot to tell, but can you start off this episode by just telling listeners some of the major points in the great story that God is writing in and through your life? Yeah. So I will just hit the highlights, Jen, um, because we'll probably dive into some of the rest of it, but... Uh, got polio when I was an infant. We were in India. The doctor had no idea what I had, gave me the wrong medicine. So I was basically a quadriplegic um, within a few days because the doctor gave me cortisone, which lowers your body's immune system. So polio spread throughout my body. So grew up uh, in and out of the hospitals, basically had 21 operations by the time I was 13 was pretty angry at God, but God really um, kind of revealed himself to me through the scripture in John 9, where Jesus um, says that this man was born blind, that the works of God would be displayed in his life, and really sensed that that was God's call for me. Then thought my life was going to be perfect, and for 10 years it really was. I got everything I wanted, and then life started to crumble for me. I had four miscarriages. I had a son who had a hypoplastic left heart. He had surgery at birth, but, um, and it was interesting because when we found out that we found out in utero, a lot of the medical community encouraged us to have an abortion, to harvest his organs. I mean, there was all these really horrifying things that we sort of dealt with, but he was born, had surgery, super successful surgery, but at two months old, a doctor took him off his medicine sort of impulsively because he was doing so well. And he died. And that sort of was really this transformative moment in my faith because I just couldn't believe that a good God who heard me cry out as a believer would let my son die. So it was really this shift in my theology started happening at that time. And then God met me again in this incredible way. And just I saw that knowing God was more important than anything in life. My suffering didn't end there, though. I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome six years after that, which means basically I will start going backwards, and I have. Um, I was diagnosed a bunch of years ago, and basically all the gains that I made from all the surgeries and all the exercise are getting unwound. So I use a wheelchair more than I walk. My arms are failing. I deal with pain. So all the things that I thought I was past are really coming back. So I deal with that. And then um, six years after that diagnosis, my um, husband came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. And I was raising two adolescent daughters. Our world sort of crashed. And um, they both 
sort of walked away from faith. They were 10 and 13, sort of young in their faith and walked away. And yet um, God brought them both back, which has been incredible. And God met me in these amazing ways in that time, because, you know, I was telling myself all of these things of you're not enough. And yet God whispered of me, you know, you're enough because you are in me. Mm. And so that, that was just a time of really drawing close to God, even though it was probably the hardest time in my life. It was probably the deepest time spiritually. And then uh, six years after my ex-husband left, I mean, well, three years after he left, we got divorced. And then um, three years later, I married an amazing man named Joel, which I love Joel's name because Joel 2.25 says, I will restore the years the locust has eaten. And God did that with Joel in many ways and so grateful for him. Benita, just hearing your life story is overwhelming just as a listener, um, considering some of these major points that you share about polio and post-polio and miscarriages and your son, your first husband, your daughters. Um, there's just so much there. And I guess, first of all, I appreciate that you're willing to share that. Those are hard things to share. Um, but you give us a glimpse of the character of our God when you speak about the suffering in your life and the ways that he has met you in that. And so um, just on behalf of the listeners, I'm thankful for your vulnerability, but also my heart aches and breaks to hear some of those things because it's been hard. You've had a hard life. There's no getting around it. And yet yeah. your lips glorify the Lord. So I thank him for that. Uh, well, that's sweet. You know, it's funny. When I look at my life, I know this sounds crazy, but I don't think of it as that hard because I look back and I think of what God has given me in the those things. And I, I know it sounds trite and weird, and I'm not trying to be this like Pollyanna mm-hmm. person, but when I look back, I, I wouldn't trade any of those things for what they've taught me about the Lord. Like I am yeah. actually a happy person. And so when people say, oh my gosh, your life was so hard, like it was, and, and I wouldn't want to walk through those things again, but I'm so grateful that yeah. God showed up the way he did. Yeah. So. Well, that's a really great, just mini lesson within all the other things that we're going to glean from you today is that we work so hard here in the U.S. especially to flee suffering, don't we? I mean, I'm guilty of that uh, as much as anybody. I pop an Advil the second I feel like maybe a headache is coming on. You know, maybe I want to say a lazy boy as much as anybody else. So, um, but as you say, the Lord does meet us in our suffering and we can trust him to meet mm-hmm. us in it. So that is, that's really good. Well, there are so many directions we could go in this conversation. I hate that we're distilling it down to just one episode. So again, I do hope that listeners will grab a copy of your book because they can read so much more about your story, about the way you have walked through fire, as your title um, says. So, But for now, I would love to spend some time on this specific episode talking about some things, some cultural issues, some things that cultural trends, things that I like to talk about frequently on this podcast, um, on all things and things that I think you can help us think through specifically a whole pro-life ethic. So on all things, when a current event happens and it warrants a conversation, I like to talk uh, to dive into topics on things like abortion or immigration, healthcare, racism, education, more just those, all of those topics lend themselves to the way we as believers might think about a whole pro-life ethic. Mm-hmm. So that's where I would like to go on this specific episode, especially as we think about, you know, our lives, who God is, he's the creator of life. He's the one who gives us life and breath. He's the one 
who created every single person in his image and every life with a plan and a purpose. So that's where we're headed. And along those lines, um, thinking about life and health and the sovereignty of God, can you tell us more about what it was like to grow up as a child who had polio? What, what was that experience like for you and for your family, for your parents? Yeah. Well, it was interesting because when I first got polio, the doctors in India basically told my parents to leave the country because they felt like, and it's true in, in some cultures, disability is sort of shunned. Like it's a curse on your family. There's no services. And in India, nothing is handicapped accessible, as well as they didn't even think I would sit up. So my parents left India both to get me better medical care and because there was going to be very little um, to help me in India. So we left. And so when we came to the U.S., uh, well, we went to England and then to Canada and then to the U.S., but I think part of the thing that I struggled with most, which is part of the culture in India, but also here is disability makes you feel less than, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not equal to everyone else. And I think I bought that from the time I was really little. When I was living in the hospital, there was sort of my life. Oh, so to back up, when I was, uh, my parents left England, went to Canada. My parents didn't have a lot of money and I was in a free hospital. It was a Shriners hospital and parents only got to visit on weekends. So I was on a ward with about a dozen, I don't know exactly 15, 20 other girls. And we did not see our parents except on weekends. So we sort of had our own little culture there. And my life was in a bed watching people on TV. I was in a body cast for nine months straight. So my, my idea of what normalcy was TV, which as we Mm. all know is a little bit scary because, you know, that is not normal life. That is airbrushed life, even especially back in the seventies and sixties. And so that was sort of my first thing of, I'm not good enough. I live in a hospital bed. I'm not like everybody else. And then when I was out, I was made fun of. Kids would bully me all the time. I mean, the most frequent question I got was, what's wrong with you? So now they meant, why do you have a limp? But you hear it as the way it is asked, what is wrong with you? And so you think about yourself as defective. So I remember trying to walk straight. That was my biggest goal is for people not to know that I had a disability because it felt shameful to me to have it. And when I was seven, a group of kids boys threw stones at me and they called me a cripple. And I remember falling down and then realizing the world is not safe and I am not going to fit into it. So that was sort of my view of myself Mm. with polio growing up was there's the world and there's me. Yeah. Wow. You point out a couple things that um, just really stick out to me. The one, one being your life being so separate and you thinking of what is normal as what's on TV. Yes. And um, I think there is somewhat of a connection or a parallel that can be drawn to this moment where our social media age is so prevalent, yes. right? And mm-hmm. so um, we're isolated, maybe COVID isolated us, but I think so many other things isolate us well before COVID and we all have our phones in our hands and we're scrolling social media and thinking these highlight reels of other people's life 
is what's real life while we're here, not living a life that's as pretty or as beautiful as what we see on the screen and how um, devastating that can be as it shapes our perception of ourselves and of our world. It's so true. I mean, I think, you know, you realize people are putting filters even on half their pictures. So that's really not what they look like. Mm-hmm. And they pick the best moments of their family. And so you look at your own family and you think, we don't do that. Yeah. Why are we not having fun the way everybody else is? And yeah, I think we all buy into this idea that everybody else is have has a better life than we do. Right. Right. Yeah. Something I like to really think about, talk about, write about is just our, our obsession with our bodies mm-hmm. and the outward beauty, outward ability, how we put so much of our identity in the way that we look and the things that we can do. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a child, it sounds like you were feeling that, that very heavy burden as the world subtly and not so subtly communicated to you, um, that your life was less valuable because you were le- in their eyes, less yes. evil. Yes. What has that looked like for you as an adult? How have those thoughts morphed or not? Um, because hearing you, you know, I can, I think probably everybody listening can relate in some way. You know, we, there's constantly a pressure to be, to look a certain way, to perform a certain way, to produce a certain amount of whatever. Um, so talk, talk to us about what that has been like as an adult for you. Well, I wish I could say, you know, it was something that happened in my childhood and then, you know, I came to Christ and that was all gone. And, you know, God did redeem a lot of that and help me see that God was going to use my disability. So there was something that God used in that. But at the same time, I would say that I have struggled with sort of body image and feeling like not I'm not enough for decades. And realized when I uh, married my first husband, I really felt that my body wasn't good enough. You know, 21 operations means lots of scars on your body and just walking with a pronounced limp. And that was something that I always still even married, wanted to hide. Like my body was not enough. And I talk about in the book, my, um, my husband had an affair early on in our marriage and did basically say like, your body's not that attractive to me. He, I don't want people to think he's a horrible guy. He, he is not. And, um, we, we reconciled after that and we had a good marriage for a lot of years, but that was something that, you know, he might've said one comment. And to me, because it was such a big thing in my life that just, I still remember it. It sort of brought back all these things that I thought about myself. So, that has been something, and it's the process of God working that in my life, because then when when he did leave um, uh, 18 years later, it, it really just sort of brought all that back of I'm not enough. You know, my body is the reason that people are rejecting me and my disability. And that was probably made worse because of my post-polio, knowing that I couldn't, that I could do less and less. And yet the beautiful thing about that is I had to wrestle with it. Like sometimes we have these things that we think about ourselves that we push down and we plaster a verse over them and we say, okay, we're good. We're fine. Because as believers, we have to pretend like we're fine sometimes because we have to have a victory or people wonder why we are, Mm. what's wrong with us. That's good. (laughs) 
But God was like, so, but there was nothing that could help me, but God, Mm because I was in a pit after he left feeling like I'm not enough. Like the questions and the comments that people made when I was seven of what is wrong with you? I'm asking myself that right now. What is wrong with me? And to really wrestle with God on who am I? What is my worth? were really good things to get to do because I don't think if that had, if that hadn't happened, it wasn't like those issues wouldn't have been there. I just would have pressed them down and covered them over with other things. And so that was just this opportunity to sit with God on who am I? And I remember going away, even on a a retreat, just a silent retreat with me and God to just kind of figure that out because I am a helper. That's sort of my classification. I love to help people. And my diagnosis with post-polio syndrome sort of reshaped my identity because before that I was the first person to bring a meal to people. I was an artist. That was who I was, was I scrapbooked every little breath of my children. I have probably 20 scrapbooks with, you know, every day of their lives until I couldn't do it anymore. And It was really hard to figure out who am I if I can't do those things because I had really defined myself after um, coming to Christ in some ways, defined myself as a believer, but I also defined myself by what I did, Mm -hmm. that I, if my body wasn't right and something was wrong with me, I was going to prove that I wasn't by what I accomplished. So that became my new thing was, you know, I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to um, make meals, be a gourmet cook. I I have an MBA. My, My job was an idol for a lot of years. So I feel like God had to strip me of all of those mm. things because for a while it was being a great career person. That was my identity. Then with post-polio, I realized I just couldn't do all the other things that I wanted to do. So I had to go to God, especially after Dave left and just say, who am I? Mm. Because everything that I have built my whole life to be has crashed. Yeah thought I was a good wife. I thought I was, you know, my kids were rebelling, so I couldn't put my identity in great kids and being a great mom. Mm -hmm. And that is when God showed me your identity is in me. It is not in all these things. So that is so helpful. I would love to maybe expand on a couple of things that you mentioned. The first is, um, you know, you said we tend to, as believers, gloss over these things. There's something um, unsettled in our soul. There's a grief. There's a wound or a sin, something. But we tend to continue living life at a fast pace mm-hmm. and slap a verse on it, as you said, and then show, nope, I have victory. You know, we're yes. so eager to proclaim victory before we've really probably waged the war or walked through the valley. Um Can you speak to that? Speak to the listener who senses something is wrong. Uh, I am not well. It is not well with my soul, actually. Um, How how should she or he maybe sit in that? Maybe just some practical advice that you have, Vanitha, for slowing down and sitting in it. What does that look like? Yeah. For me, the times that I've done that, it involves silence, Mm. like like no phones, no TV, just some time that you carve out with God. And it is for me, my Bible and my journal and just sort of God, show me, show me who you are and show me who I am. Mm. And I have written for just pages as I start just pouring out my heart to God, not 
for a blog post or not for anybody else to consume. Cause I think it's easy, especially for us as writers and speakers that we process to help people versus process to heal ourselves. And so I feel like God has called me at times, just called me away to say, okay, talk to me. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just talking to God, yeah, not talking at him, but to him and opening up the Bible and lamenting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the Psalms of lament because they are raw and they're real and just being really real and peeling back the layers till you really sense this is you. And, and I mean, there's so many layers. I don't know if we ever can really understand our own hearts, but we can get to a layer where we think, okay, this is actually where I am and not what I think other people want to hear. And that's just something I've struggled with. I talk about in the book a lot of figuring out how I think I need to be, what healing looks like or a good response looks like, and then forcing myself into that versus being who I am and letting God mold me. Yeah, that's really helpful. It's hard to slow down in this. It's so countercultural mm-hmm. to be quiet and to slow down. And it's so countercultural even to our Western Christian sort of yes. culture to identify grief and sit in it and to yeah. be authentic before the Lord. So those are that's really helpful. Another thing that you pointed out that I would love to just expand upon a little bit is um, you said that you found your worth, your identity in what you could do. And I think that's something that's so many of us wrestle with. And you said, you know, whether it was in your MBA or your marriage or motherhood or being an artist, um, so many, and, and, and I've experienced that myself. I mean, it's sort of a daily battle to be very honest that, um, I am not what I do. Mm-hmm. So maybe, um, like the last question, what could you say to the listener who senses that she is doing that, that she's equating her worth with her ability at work or her ability at home, um, the things that she can produce? What might be just some practical help, some spiritual wisdom, some biblical wisdom for you are not what you do, actually, um, and to how nipping those thoughts, I guess, and renewing the mind of the, um, renewing our minds as we think those, as we believe those lies. Yeah. Well, the first Christian book I read was Shadow of the Almighty. And one line sticks out to me, and it was Jim Elliott said, um, and he was um, a martyr and um, was uh, martyred in South America for people who don't know. But anyway, he said, uh, analyzed my desire to do something for God rather than be something for God. And I remember 16 years old realizing that is a huge issue for me and continues to be. I mean, that was a lot of years ago, but I think we all want to do something for God. And yet God sees our heart. Um, You know, God does not call us to be successful. We want to be successful. God calls us to be faithful and God sees our heart and I mean, I love the story of John the Baptist because he starts with this huge ministry, great proclamation. An angel says he's going to be born. People are flocking to him. That looks like worldly success. And then Jesus's ministry starts. John is imprisoned and he's beheaded. So his ministry from a worldly sense is completely unsuccessful. Like he starts huge and ends beheaded in a small prison. And he even starts to doubt. He says to Jesus, his disciples go to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? 
Like it cannot be true that I was faithful. I started this huge way and now my life is going to end very small. And yet Jesus says, there's no one born of woman who's greater than John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was super faithful. Mm -hmm. And yet when we look at him, we think he was not successful. From a human perspective, we know, as we see with the eyes that God gives us, you know, spiritual eyes, that he was wildly successful. He accomplished everything God wanted him to do. But I think what we see as accomplishments are often accolades and Facebook followers or friends or, um, you know, just a myriad of things, depending on whatever in your circle looks like accomplishment. And yet God sees our heart and God has plans for us, but they are often not the same kind of plans that we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. We want to see our kingdom. You know, I love in the Lord's prayer where he says, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. And honestly, a lot of us, including me say, basically my kingdom come, my will be done. Right, man, I can relate to that. And I love what you have said about John the Baptist. That is so countercultural, even to our Christian culture in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, yes. As you say, we want to do great things for God. We want to plant X number of churches, have this many people in the pews, reach this many readers or, you know, yes, we equate um, size with success rather than just walking the walk God has for us and being faithful. So yeah, yeah thank you for reminding us of that truth. So I want to turn a little bit now, this is sort of, it's going to get heavy here for a minute. Um, I know for many of us, you know, we can correct our thinking, as you say, we, we, who are followers of Christ, we have the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God to help us. We can identify the lies we believe and we can course correct. But when this kind of thinking is not corrected, and I think sometimes it goes unchecked or unnoticed in our own hearts. And of course it's definitely unchecked in culture at wide, but when this kind of thinking, this idolatry of ability, this idolatry of having a quote productive life, when it's allowed to take its natural course, it actually leads to a culture of death. The, the consequences, the stakes are high. It's, it, it leads to death. And what I'm talking about is insofar as we idolize ability or as we say, you know, a good life, a worthy life is a life that can produce something or do something and, you know, sort of match up to our standards then it causes parents to weigh, you know, for example, aborting a child with Down syndrome, or as you shared about your own son, when doctors knew um, when he was still in your womb, that there were going to be health issues, they encouraged you to abort him as well. Um, This kind of thinking, this idolatry causes us to rationalize assisted suicide, you know, having a right to die. I want to have the right to end my life because I somehow see it as less worthy or less productive. So, um, while on the one hand we might think, yeah, you know, this is some false thinking that I really need to get rid of. Um, I I think this way of thinking is really far more pervasive and sinister and dark, um, Mm -hmm. in the culture at large than we're maybe aware of, um, as we sort of equate the good life with the beautiful lives we see on social media. And then we get sort of maybe a diagnosis when we're pregnant and those worlds collide and we wonder, well, what, what kind of life is, is worthy So I would love for you to speak into that a little bit. Um, You've helped us think about how we can renew our minds. And I I really appreciate that because, of course, it starts on that personal level. Um, But how might we push back against this culture of death around us? Um, What can we say to ourselves or to our friends or to others in our church 
who are facing maybe a birth of a child who will have um, a health condition that they're not prepared for, or to a friend who receives a diagnosis. Um, those things are coming, right? All of those things are coming for all of us in one way or another. So how do we push against that culture at large in our churches, in our world? I know that's a huge question, Benita, um, but I would love I would love to hear your wisdom there. Yeah, I would say life is precious and mm-hmm. God gives life and God takes it away and we cannot be in that place. And when I was just reading this morning in Psalm 139, just about how God creates us in our womb. He knows all of our days before one of them comes to be. And so to look at life as uh, as just um, sort of our creation to do whatever we want with it is really a false way to look at it. We are created by God for God. And so just understanding that God has a purpose for our children and they can glorify God and, and fulfill his purpose by not by just being. It's not that they have to do something for him, just like we don't have to do something for him. And I think, I mean, I was really horrified when, when the medical community was so encouraging us to abort Paul. And it was interesting because the thinking went, um, yeah, you're actually cruel by bringing a child mm-hmm. with a disability into the world. And that's what the, um, the obstetrician or one of the obstetricians I saw said to me was, you know, I know you think you're being noble, but you're actually being cruel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because our society thinks suffering is always a bad thing and being less than perfect is a bad thing. But, you know, none of us are perfect. Our lives are a mixture of a lot of things. And I actually find, you know, children with Down syndrome, children with disabilities, they bring so much joy. They see the world in a different way. And and that is refreshing. I mean, you see that Jesus says, you know, I've revealed these things to little children, you know, so God in the kingdom of God, I think these children are, and adults with disabilities are so precious in the eyes of God. And I think because we only see people based on what they can accomplish and really not what who they are and how God is using them, I think we miss out on so much. And so as parents, we think, oh, our child is going to be a burden. What are we going to do? We, But we don't really see them the way God sees them. And I think if we did, we'd be blown away by what God values, really. Um, I think we think God values huge churches and children who go to Harvard and and all of those things. And I think God values the small and the faithful Mm. and the people who are completely committed to him. And so I just think we have a very upside down view of that. And and yeah, I do think if you are pregnant right now, or if you have a child with a special need, that is a big assignment that God has given you. I mean, I don't want to minimize how hard that is because it is a different challenge. It is a child that will, who will need you longer than other children who at 18 leave home. But then we all have different assignments from God. And I think that God entrusts those to people. And I know for me, I haven't loved my suffering, but I've loved that God has walked with me through it. And he has entrusted all those things to me. And so I think for people who are 
have children with special needs, pregnant with children with special needs, no children, God is entrusting that to you. Mm. And there is struggle with it, but there is an incredible joy because God doesn't give us an assignment. He does not walk with us and enable us to follow through with. Yeah. I think you're definitely pushing against another idol that we have. And that is that we want to be God. We want Mm -hmm. to be sovereign. We want to decide what our assignments are. Like, no, thank you, Lord. I will not take that assignment. I prefer this assignment that I have written instead. And what you're speaking to is really a life of surrender as we hold our, our um, plans with very open hands and say, okay, I thought my life would look this way but the Lord has ordained this other thing. And so embracing that with a sense of trusting the Lord and even joy, knowing that he will help us and he will walk with us through that. So countercultural, so very countercultural. Yeah, you're right. We all want to mold our lives. We want control and we, we decide what's good for us and we decide how we want to do things. And yet, yeah, the Christian life is about surrender and about saying, yes, Lord, because God's plans are so much better than our plans. We think our plans are for our good, but we define goods in such a limited way. I mean, when I think about it, I think most of us, for our children, we want them to have carefree lives. We just do. Like whenever a struggle comes into their life, all we want to do is pray God, take it away. We want them to have trouble-free lives. But God sees that does not produce people with depth or people with longing for him. It doesn't do any of those things. But I think for our own life, sometimes we're okay with suffering because we see what it's doing in us. But for our children and me included, like my first thought is, Lord, take that away Mm -hmm. versus knowing that God is using that to mold them. Yeah, that is so good. And something that I I think we need to remember every hour is that suffering produces. I mean, how many times do we see that in the New Testament that a trial or suffering produces something complete that the Lord wants to produce in us, but it's so countercultural, so counter to our flesh, so counter to everything around us. It's um, so easy to forget, but I love what you said, Vanitha, the Christian life is about surrender. The Christian life is about trusting our Lord and walking as he has assigned us. Um, so I think we'll end on that. Although I do want to ask you, is there anything else you want to share? I mean, just any other, Um, your life to me and the way that you've submitted yourself to the Lord feels like a a deep well of wisdom and a reflection of the goodness of our God. So is there anything that you feel like maybe the spirit's prompting you to leave us with? Um, I think I want everyone to know that God loves them extravagantly Mm -hmm. because that is the bottom line. If you don't think that God loves you, this seems like hard theology. They're hard words. But if you believe that God, you know, there's three prepos- three words. I mean, God loves you, God is for you, and God is with you. Mm. And I think doing all these things, knowing that God loves you deeply, he will never do anything to hurt you. I mean, everything he does is out of love. And because he is absolutely for you. And he will never ask you to do something that he will not go there with you. I think all of these things would be hard, but because of those truths that we have to cling to over and over again, and they are written on every page of the Bible, I think that's how we can embrace them and find joy in them is knowing that our suffering is not meaningless. God is using it and he is in it with us. Mm. 
That's so good. God loves you. God is for you. God is with you. Wow. Thank you, Vanitha. Um, lastly, tell the listeners where they can keep up with you because I imagine everybody's going to want to follow you after hearing this if they don't already. <laughs> well, I blog um, at Vanitha.com, with, which my daughter says is the most narcissistic website, but it's just my first name. So it's <laughs> Vanitha.com. And um, I write regularly for Desire and God. And um, my, my memoir is Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. And you can find that on Amazon. Great. Well, thanks, Vanitha. I'm so appreciative to what the Lord has done in your life and your willingness to share that with us. And thank you for coming on to All Things. And for all of you out there, thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. 